we're gonna spend some time and walk through really John 6, the whole chapter. And I want you to think of this thought. When, not, not how, when do you measure success? When? That's an important question for us. And as we walk through this, we need to just realize that our life is filled with temptations to celebrate the wrong thing at the wrong time. As we've been reading through the Bible, we find ourselves in the Gospels. And the Gospels make Jesus known to us through all these descriptive parallels. These just beautiful examples of who Jesus is. Uh, you're familiar with like Jesus the Good Shepherd. L last week, our big truth was Jesus is the Lamb of God. This week, our big truth is Jesus is the bread of life. But our understanding of those statements, the implications on our life, are rooted into the context of that illustration. If you don't know what a sheep is, if you don't know what a shepherd is, if you don't know the history of that lamb for Israel, you're gonna miss so much of what's being communicated about Jesus in those descriptions. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend most of our time just walking through John 6, getting to the context of this description. And at the very end, we'll unpack a few big ideas just really quick. So here's what I want you to do. We're gonna cover a lot, a lot that we won't be able to fully unpack. I want you to take good notes. I want you to write down your questions. Go back to your spouse, talk about them at home. Go back to your life group, talk about them in your life group. You can email them at the behind the message and maybe we'll be able to get some of those questions there. But I want you to wrestle with some of these things as we walk through John chapter six, all right? So John six, it begins with this multitude of people, this crowd of people that had heard about Jesus doing all these incredible miracles and they've gathered around and Jesus feeds them all from a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, right? We're familiar with that story. It's incredible. It's like Jesus goes all Mary Poppins and he just keeps reaching into the bag and more bread and more fish comes out and 5,000 people have their fill. And Jesus then sneaks away from the crowd. The crowd is amazed that Jesus has done this thing. And they are convinced that Jesus is a great prophet, the promised prophet like Moses. And they want to make him king and lead a revolt against Rome. And so Jesus sneaks off. Later, his disciples can't find Jesus, and so it's time to go home. Home is on the other side of the sea. And so for us, we think sea like ocean, think like a great lake. Like bigger than Boone Lake, but not like an ocean, right? And so what happens is Capernaum is on the other side of the sea from where they're at. If they walk around, it takes a long time. If you get in your boat, you can go straight across a lot quicker. So they get in their boat that evening and they head home. Except a storm comes. Makes the journey a lot longer, they're afraid, they're stuck out in the middle of the sea, waves are crashing. 
And in that moment of desperation, they see Jesus walking on the water. He walks up to the boat, calms the waves, gets in the boat, storm clears, and they're immediately able just to sail on in to Capernaum. There they go to sleep. The next morning they wake up, and the crowd appears who has walked all the way around the sea, all the way around this kind of, you know, big body of water looking for Jesus. Think about that, by the way. Like Southern cultures, many of us, we understand, you know, we sought Jesus by walking an aisle. They sought Jesus by walking around a lake. I don't know. Just maybe we'll start doing that. Anyway, I, preacher humor. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm distracted. So here's what happens. They show up and they're like, where did you go? How did you get over here? But we've been looking for you. We've been searching for you. And Jesus answers them in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus immediately exposes their motive, the reality of the situation. Listen, for those of us who think Jesus would do well in kind of our southern hospitality, avoid conflict culture, man, we haven't been paying attention. These people have literally walked around a sea to find him. And his first words are, you're not seeking me because you saw signs and wonders and wanting to get closer to me or to the Lord. You're coming to me because you want your bellies full. You want food. And he immediately kind of turns this back to them. And he says in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You know, there's always that guy in the crowd too, you know, the, the guy who's like, listen, don't make me think about all this stuff. Just tell me what I need to do, all right? Just tell me what I need to do. And so in verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? See, Jesus had said in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is a call to saving faith. Jesus acknowledging that the very work of God in our life that saves is faith. A faith that dies to self and turns to Jesus. See, the gospel message isn't an add-on. It's not something we just get to tack onto our life. The gospels make that clear. The gospel message is death to self and faith in Jesus as the only, the only hope of salvation. Life in him. And so they realize what's going on in this and they're wrestling with this. And so in verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna 
in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, if you are who you say you are, show us proof. Give us a sign. I mean, it's, it's kind of a silly question considering the day before he went, went like Mary Poppins and just kept dishing out food. But again, they're saying, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Let us see your authority. Let us see your power. That's what Moses, the great prophet of old, did. See, he gave manna. He gave bread that fell from heaven that sustained God's people. What's your sign? See, Israel connected. It'll give you kind of a, a fun term. Sign bread with manna. This bread that is a sign that God is with you, sustains you, supplies you, they immediately connect that back in their history to God giving Israel, his people, manna that fell from heaven day after day after day. And so they say, listen, where's your manna? Where's your sign bread from heaven and so in verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So the first thing Jesus does in response is he corrects their false assumption. It wasn't Moses and a sign of his work that brought bread. It was a gift from the Father. And the Father gives true bread from heaven. See, you guys, you're missing it. Manna is not the true bread that gives God's people life. And he begins from here to expand on this double meaning. And Jesus does this all the time. He's done this with water. He's done this with the temple. And now he's doing this again with bread. But they're just stuck. They can't see past the bread. And so in verse 33, he goes on. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And don't you just want to sigh when they say that? I mean, they're not tracking. They're, they're not getting it. They're still looking for something to eat. Their, their response is very similar to the Samaritan woman. If, if you have this living water, give it to me so that I can drink and live forever. It's the same kind of response. It reminds me of those cartoons. You ever seen the cartoons when they're really hungry and everything they see then just turns to food? It's all they can think about. It's just the thing that's stuck on their mind. Here, Jesus is teaching them laying out the depths of who he is, and they're just stuck on their understanding of bread. So Jesus makes it clear. In verse 35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen me, or that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Here's what's happening. Jesus 
is explaining to them he is the bread. And they say back to him in disbelief, show us a sign. Show us sign bread, bread from heaven. And Jesus is like, listen, I am the sign bread. I am the bread from heaven. I am standing in front of you, talking to you. God, taking on flesh, the Messiah in front of you. And you're missing it. And you're asking for some loaves of sunbeam to be your sign. Do you not see God is in front of you? He explains this. And his point is there is no greater sign than that which is right in front of you. If you cannot see me, nothing else, nothing else would ever convince you. I am the sign bread. There's no convincing beyond Jesus. And he explains in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus kind of gives us two truths that are introduced right here. They're powerful truths. Catch them both. Number one, the Father gives to Jesus those who come to him. Second, once given to Jesus, Jesus will never cast them away. And in verse 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. They were looking on the Son of God, and yet they didn't believe. They saw God standing in front of them, and yet they did not see him. So in verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Note this quick connection. It's just worth noting this connection back to Israel and their history and manna and now the grumbling and this parallel that's here. They don't get it. They don't believe, not really. And so they go back, they circle back to the information they do believe. We know his family. We know his mother, his father. We know where he came from. We know his name. How can he be from heaven? And realize something about these hurdles that are in front of them. They're true statements. This is Jesus of Joseph and Mary. This is the person that is there from Israel who lives among them. What they miss is the context. See, there's a disconnect between the thing they know and what they don't know. 
and it's troubling to them. They can't get their mind around it. And so verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me, the bread of life, the only gospel, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, Jesus circles back to those two truths. The Father gives to Jesus those who come to him, and once given to Jesus, Jesus will never cast away. How this works out, how the Father gives to the Son those who come to him, and how we are responsible for our belief and faith, that has been a question that has been wrestled with for 2,000 years. And we're not gonna solve all of that and all the specifics of how that would work in one sermon. We'll leave that for Mike or Paul to do in a few weeks. But what I want you to want to make sure you catch is two truths you can't walk away from. The Father gives to Jesus those who come to him and once given to Jesus, Jesus will never cast away. God is sovereign and we are responsible to believe. It is our work given to us in the Lord. It is our saving faith. And so in verse 45, Jesus says, it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is not a universalist. He clearly acknowledges he and he alone is from the Father. He is the only begotten Son. He is the only bread that ends well that ends with life. It's him and him alone. No one else has seen the Father, only Jesus. And it's with this, all this buildup, understand just the tensions, understand that's everything that's happening here, all the signs, all this that's kind of built up over the last 24 hours to get to our big truth here in verse 48. Beginning in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And there's this incredibly bold moment. It should be like in a movie. I mean, it's so bold. He goes on into verse 49 and he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. Don't miss it. They wanted a sign. They wanted a great miracle, a gift of grace from God. But they wanted something that wouldn't save them. And Jesus exposes it and he turns it right back at them and he says, yeah, manna fell from heaven and your fathers ate it and they died. They still died. They still died. 
Manna, yeah, it was a great blessing. It was a gift of grace from God, but it was not a saving grace, and your fathers, they still died. Your bread, in all of its tradition, in all of its value, in all of its goodness, it still ended in death. Here's what we need to do. We need to pause there and understand all that's unpacked in that very moment. All of the goodness, all the general goodness we have that we want to pour our life into, our marriage, our kids, our accomplishment, our work, all those things left to themselves as good as they are, gifts of grace in our life, apart from Jesus, they still end in death and separation from God. Nothing else. Only Jesus brings life. That's the declaration that's being said here. Your manna, this great miracle, this great work of the Lord, it did not save your fathers. And yet, that's what you seek? In contrast, Jesus said of himself in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus knows that they don't get it. I mean, he, he, he's aware, he's already exposed that they are not discerning that he is the son of God. Standing right in front of them. And now, he specifically continues, the bread of life is my flesh, my flesh. And so, in verse 52, the Jews then dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How does that work? They're, they're still struggling to follow, and Jesus, the great wise, loving teacher just doubles down. He says in verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is the true food and my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of your fathers, which they ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Jesus has drawn a hard line here. You either live by faith, by the work of the Spirit, or die according to your own discernment. I mean, this is heavy. I mean, how do you get your mind around all of this? I mean, consider what he's saying. And so in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. 
Who can listen to it? Notice, it's not one or two, it's many. Notice, they're disciples. To this point, they have been following Jesus. They're following him. They've sought him out. They walked around the lake. And many of them are struggling, and they don't understand. And in verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Here's the question. If you think this idea, this illustration of eating my flesh and drinking my blood is too offensive, what will you think about the cross? What will you think when the Son of God takes on death? How offensive will that be to you? How will you overcome such a scandalous, mind-bending reality? See, here's the thought. You want Jesus to convince them. I I want Jesus to convince them. I, I somehow lean into that. But they're not gonna comprehend the cross. We're not gonna fully get our mind around God. The one true supreme being dying shamefully on a cross. You you don't convince people into the family of God. Oh, and the church has watered down the gospel for centuries trying. But Jesus' point right here in this moment with people who are begging to follow him and all he needs to do is work a little sign and do something, make some bread and they're like, I'm in, but they're not really in. And he's exposing all of it. He's laying it all out there for us to see and wrestle with. And so when Verse 63, he just makes it so clear. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See, like the Jews in John 6, even for those of us who are authentic Jesus followers, it is hard. Our pride and ignorance will not let this truth have its way in our life. But if we would, there are so many implications, and I wanna give you two of them just really quick. Implications for disciple makers, authentic Jesus followers. First, Share the gospel with the knowledge that there is no life-giving power in your flesh. Acknowledge that conversion isn't your work. Worship is your work. In faith, filled with the Spirit that makes much of Jesus. And just realize for a moment how that changes your approach. Second, Teach the word. 
with the knowledge that there is no life-giving power in your flesh. And you will proclaim the truth and trust the Spirit, not your, and fill in the blank, your delivery, your relational equity, your intelligence, your charisma, whatever you think that is that will make the difference. See, if we believe this, we will proclaim more boldly, we will pray more desperately, and we will love more truly. Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Man, this has been a powerful teaching session with Jesus. John chapter six is so heavy and you've caught all this context. And so in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked with him. They left. Many. They were following him before, but they left. I was studying this a few years ago and it just caused me to go back and really look at the examples of the New Testament teachers Jesus and Paul and Peter. And can I just tell you something? If we're gonna make disciples like Jesus, some are gonna walk away. Some are gonna walk away. You don't see these disciple makers in the New Testament that don't have them walk away. Paul, by the end of his ministry, says all of Asia has turned against me. But I want you to notice something. Jesus let the disciples walk away. He didn't go and explain and say, no, 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 let me explain to you what it really means. Let me soften it for you. He knew that wouldn't really make the difference. But I wanna make sure you catch something. Jesus never, anywhere in the gospels, walks away. He's always there, proclaiming truth. Always there when they run to him always there when they approach him. There's never this, I'm offended and I don't have time for you, stiff arm. He's present, but he does allow people to walk away from him. And you'll read that again and again as you go through the New Testament. Think about that. Talk about that in your life groups. And so they left. Many of his disciples left. So in verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice something about Peter's confession. It's not anchored in clarity of mind, with the depth of understanding, that he understands every nuance of all of creation and the gospel. Peter's confession was anchored in spirit-filled faith in Jesus. Jesus, you are the bread of life. 
to whom else would we go? I may not understand it all. I may not get it all. I may not have my mind fully around everything that's there, but I will tell you from a grace-filled, spirit-filled faith, you and you alone are God, and I have no other place I can go that will save me. And with that, a beautiful picture of faith and our big truth that Jesus is the bread of life. And so as the team comes up, three quick big ideas, three implications of this I want you to just wrestle with this week. Talk to others about. First, Jesus is the bread that satisfies. Nothing else you eat. There's no other manna that's going to bring you satisfaction in the end. It may taste good in the moment. You may even enjoy it for your entire life. But in the end, you will stand before God and give an account for what you did with Jesus, the bread of life. It is the only bread that will satisfy you, that brings true joy into our life. Everything else ends in death and separation. Second implication, Jesus is the bread that saves. Jesus is the bread that saves. Not only will I find no satisfaction in anything else, I will find no salvation in anything else. Apart from Jesus, the wrath of God remains. The wrath of God remains. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that saves. And third, Jesus is the bread that sustains. There are many of you in this room who are authentic Jesus followers. And your life it can get hard. I wanna make sure you don't miss that truth we just covered a couple of times in John chapter six. Jesus will never let you go. No matter what you would lose in this life, no matter how hard, no matter how sad, he will keep you. He will. He will keep you. And it will not matter the chaos of the world around you. He and he alone is the bread that sustains for all of eternity. For all of eternity. If you're here and there's never been a moment in time in your life where the Spirit has revealed the power of God and the revelation of His Son to you that has led you to a place of saving faith, a faith that says death to self and life in Jesus. He is the Son of God, the one true Savior that would have you like Peter. I may not understand it all, but where else, to whom else would I run? My life is yours. I wanna challenge you as we sing this song to pray. 
maybe for the first time in your life, and ask the Lord to do his work, to redeem you and adopt you into his family. Your work is faith. He does the saving work. Cry out to him. He is faithful to save. Let's pray, and we're gonna continue in a time of worship. Father, thank you for sending your son, the bread of life, that does not end in death, but saves, satisfies, and sustains. Forgive us when we put our focus on the manna of our life. Even the good things. Lord, I pray you give us the wisdom to open our eyes open our heart and acknowledge that Jesus and Jesus alone is the bread of life. Take glory and honor in your word and in our worship this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.